great singing once again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer once again. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, speak for your people are listening. Father, would your words of truth today prevail over the unbelief in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know that I was a history major in college. I, I studied history. Now, those of you that know me well may know that I didn't study that much, but I did study history and was awarded a, a degree in history. So I like history. And lately, I think when I go online, I'll see something pop up and it'll say, on this day in history, you know? And even in the newspaper years ago, our hometown newspaper, You'd flip through the newspaper and you'd see at the back, you know, on this day in history. It was a great way to, um, to learn. Well, the early days of September, for those of you that pay attention to history, may find that the early days of September are significant. September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland. It's the start of World War II in Europe that eventually encompassed the whole world. Um, September 2nd, 1945, the Empire of Japan surrendered to the Allied powers on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. September 1st, 1939, the world is at war. The United States officially entered that war following the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. All of us probably know some folks who were living at the time of World War II in the United States, even though those people, especially the veterans, are dying every day and there won't be many left. But everyone ended up being involved in the war effort, whether they were fighting on the front lines or back on the home front. The war affected everyone. Everyone was involved in the war, rationing gas and other products, contributing drives of scrap metal, raising funds for war bonds. Um, people that lived on the coast of the United States darkening their, their homes to to not have it silhouetted in the evening. Everybody was involved in the, in the war effort. But I want to go now to a, a couple of years before the war. The time when in 1938 the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met with the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler and, and came to an agreement called the Munich Agreement and they were trying to figure out what to do about Czechoslovakia and when Prime Minister Chamberlain returned to London after meeting with 
Hitler in Munich, he said this, my good friends, this is the second time there has, there has come back from Germany, I've come back from Germany to Downing Street with peace, with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Those words were spoken in 1938 and yet less than a year later, world war has broken out. Peace for our time? Well, most definitely, yes. Remember the announcement of the angels, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Think about the name of this church, grace and peace. Peace has arrived in Jesus Christ. There is peace, but there is also not peace. There is conflict. There is, there is a battle. There is a fight going on. An old United Methodist newspaper I used to get had an article years ago. It said this, here is the strange thought in this world and it is an erroneous thought. Some people believe that when a man is right with God, he has peace with God, with himself and with the world. But that isn't so. His soul's enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you're going to have peace with God, you're going to be at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Put very simply, peace with God equals war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now let's think about why Jesus came. According to John in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the writer to the letter to the Hebrews says this about Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, came to destroy and to deliver. The arrival of the infant Jesus we see in the Gospels is matched with the arrival of the warrior Jesus on his white horse, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we read in Revelation. You see, King Jesus came to do battle with the enemy of God. And for those who are in Christ, his enemy is our enemy. Back to World War II, it was a fight to the finish. And so was the early earthly ministry of Jesus. It was a fight to the finish. And it is a fight to the finish for the Christian in the Christian life. Now today, you and I may hear some voices out there that... that speak of the need of the Christian or the need of the church to fight, to fight for rights, to, to fight against things that are marginalizing the church and Christianity, to, 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 to fight. Indeed, we see that language in Scripture. Think with me about Paul's first letter to Timothy his spiritual son, who he was passing on the ministry to. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, he writes and tells Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. Notice, it's a fight of the faith, not a fight of the flesh, 
or in the flesh. And then in his second letter to Timothy, in the last chapter, he's not going to tell Timothy what to do. Rather, he's going to share with Timothy how he views his life. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, what is the good fight of the faith? Who do Christians fight and how do they fight? Well, Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, answers the question as to who or what Christians fight and how Christians are to fight. I think many Bibles call this section verses 10 through 20 of chapter 6 in Ephesians, the whole armor of God. It is an extended metaphor, an image, a, a word picture. It's a portrayal of the Christian life as sustained spiritual warfare fought with resources provided by God. And notice it shows up right at the end of the letter. And you see in verse 10, finally. Finally, in other words, henceforth and from now on. Let's read Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, Paul writes to the church, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote while in prison. And he's writing it to encourage a church that's dwarfed by a pagan and pluralistic culture. Six chapters make up Ephesians. And it's a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. What God has done through Christ and what we must do or be in Christ. Here you see in Ephesians a great example of the grammar of the gospel. Well, what do I mean by that? You know, school has started again and the grammar lessons have started. Well, 
Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says about Ephesians. Everything Paul urges us to do, beginning in chapter 4, is dependent on everything he tells us God has already done, beginning in chapter 1. Our faithfulness is a response to God's grace. You see, Christianity begins and indeed ends with what God has done for us in Christ. For us and for our salvation, as we say in the Nicene Creed. The Christian life, in many ways, can be seen to be becoming what we already are declared to be in Christ. Ephesians can be summarized by God uniting all things in Christ and making all things new in Christ. And in chapters 5 through 6, up to the point of 6.10, there's a harmony of new relationships in the home, with the family, at work. And yet, at chapter 6, verse 10, it moves from harmony to hostility. Look again at how he begins in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why? Why this call? Why this command to be strong? Because we're in a fight. We're in a war. We're in a battle. In other words, from now on, Paul says, keep doctrine and duty within the context of the conflict, the war, the battle, the fight. So we're going to head now to three points Three points. The first is this. Let's consider the battle we face. The battle we face. The Christian life is a battle, as we've already heard. Three big enemies. The world, that is the obstacle of the opposition and the allurement of the world. The world both opposes us, but then also invites us. It wants us to play by its rules, its systems. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that the Gentiles lord it over people, but not so among you. You're going to be the servant of people. You're going to serve. You see, the world is going to use power. You, followers of me, are going to use love. The world is, a, is an enemy. The flesh, not just the enemy out there, but the enemy in here. The enemy that we see when we go to the mirror in the morning at the sink to brush our teeth. I think we've all heard the story, it's worth repeating, of G.K. Chesterton. Answers a, a question that was put out, I think, by the Times of London in the late 1800s, early 1900s. What is the... The biggest problem in the world today. What is the greatest problem facing the world? I mean, that's a question we all ask, right? Now, is it inflation? Is it, will democracy hang on? I mean, what is the biggest problem facing the world today? G.K. Chesterton's answer, I am. I am. Our own sin. 
our own struggle with sin. Not only the world, the flesh, but the devil, God's enemy. And what is the greatest tactic, the greatest strategy of that enemy? I don't exist. You can't say that in reading the scriptures. You see, the call to be united, the call to be pure and holy in Ephesians is complicated by the presence of hostile forces. Why the command finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? Why? Because we're in a fight, we're in a battle, we're in a war. But it's a spiritual war. It's a spiritual war. You see, the peace of Christ, which we've been given, is experienced in the midst of spiritual struggle during the time between the already of Christ's resurrection and the not yet of Christ's return. And because the Christian life is a battle, all of us are living in a war zone. You know, in years past, there was like the front lines. And now we know through different types of warfare, there's really no front lines, right? Ask the people of Ukraine, where are the front lines? You see, in the Christian life, we're all living in a war zone, and and it's the the war zone of ordinary life. Think about it. Out of nowhere, you're in your kitchen with a member of your family. Out of nowhere, there's a conflict. Think about you're in the office with coworkers. Out of nowhere, people are going after each other. Think about in the family room where you've got a gathering of friends over to do something fun. And the next thing you know, people are going after each other. What is going on? The Christian life is a battle. We're all living in a war zone. We really can't get away from it. There are no front lines. I think it's helpful to even think about the fact that not only is there the visible church and the invisible church, but there's also the church militant and the church triumphant. And right now, here on earth, prior to Jesus' return, it's the church militant. We struggle We slog away. We put one foot in front of the other in the fight, in the battle. But one day, it's going to be the church triumphant. The battle we face, we we face an enemy. Now, Paul has already mentioned him in in, uh, chapter 2, the the prince of the power of the air. He's mentioned him in chapter 4. He's called him the devil We see in chapter 6 here in verses 11, the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The enemy is defeated, of course, by Christ's death and resurrection, but he's not harmless. Remember the, the, the tactic of the enemy? I don't exist. But he's powerful, he's wicked, and he's cunning. And we heard earlier, on earth is not his equal. In Luther's words, his identity, his strategy is is to deceive. There really can be no resistance, an earthly means. 
And remember, we've been talking lately in Psalms about lying and falsehood and how the, the devil or Satan is the father of lies. And think about the two big lies, the two great lies. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3. You will surely not die. But we also see it all the time now. When we hear that voice that says, a sinner like you is beyond saving. You see, he's got us on pride and he's got us with despair. There's a legend of Martin Luther struggling and and feeling like he was in the very presence of Satan. And the story goes that he was was trying to translate, I believe, one of the Bible books, uh, books of the Bible. He was trying to translate into German and he got so overwhelmed that he took his inkwell and he threw it, threw it against the wall. It's an interesting thing because you remember how Jesus responded in the wilderness, in the temptation from the enemy? It is written. It is written. It is written. Well, we've heard the command, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We've, we know the reason why it's been given because we're in a battle, we're in a fight. So in order to be strong in the Lord... You've got to believe, not believe in, but rather believe two things. First, you are weak. And second, God is strong. And in other words, in order for us to do or to more accurately be something, that is to be strong, we must believe two things. We are very, very weak. And God is very, very strong. Now, When we put these two lessons that we are weak and God is strong together, I think of John Newton, right? You've heard that quote a number of times. When I was young, I was sure of many things. Now that I'm older, I'm sure of only two things. One is I'm a miserable sinner. And two, Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well taught who gets these two lessons. This is what's going on. In order to be strong... We've got to believe two things. We're weak and God is strong. So in addition to the battle we face, let's now think about the weakness we possess. The weakness we possess. In the hymn, Though Troubles Assail Us, we read these words. No strength of our own or goodness we claim. No strength of our own or goodness we claim. What a great self-aware statement for the Christian. Why are we weak? Well, two reasons. We're weak, first of all, because we are still sinful. Remember Jesus to the disciples, to these men who had been following him, he asked them to stay up and pray with him. Do you all find it hard to stay up and pray? I mean, you, I either think about other things or I fall asleep, right? What does Jesus say to his disciples? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You and I are weak. 
In and of ourselves, we are absolutely weak and we're in desperate need. So we're weak because we still have this sin clinging to us. But we're also weak, not because we're sinful, but because we're human. We're human beings. We're finite. And the enemy we face, are you ready for this, is superhuman. There's a movie years ago where Clint Eastwood said this, a man's got to know his limitations. My friends, we are limited. We are weak, we are finite, we are limited. So we're weak because we're sinful and we're weak because we're human. But my friends, that should not be terrifying. Rather, that should be greatly comforting. To admit that we are sinful and to admit that we are finite, limited human beings should be greatly comforting. Why? Because it's the recognition of our weakness that drives us to find strength. It leads us to God. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them on God. We all know the hymn, right? That Jesus loves us, right? This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I am weak, but he is strong. Never get beyond the good theology of a hymn like that. Assurance that God loves us. An awareness that we are weak, but he is strong. I've been in many of your homes. I've been in many of your places at work. I've been in crises with you. I've been in good days and bad days. And I've looked in the mirror. We are all weak people. So belief number one is we are weak. And belief number two, as has already been mentioned, is God is strong. So there's the battle that we face, the weakness that we possess, but also the strength that God provides God is strong. You see, because Christians cannot stand on their own against superhuman powers, they must rely on the strength of the Lord's on might, which he supplies by his word and through his Holy Spirit, and we access it through prayer. If you were to spend some time reading through this list of equipment, this list of armor, whether it be the... Uh, the shield or the belt or the helmet or the breastplate, the shoes, it's all put on by prayer. That's how it's all put on, through prayer. God's power, we read, is made perfect in our weakness. Do you see how vulnerable and yet truthful Paul is when he writes the church in Corinth? I'm weak, but Christ's power rests on me. God told him that his grace is sufficient. 
And Paul even had the audacity to say, I am weak, but I'm strong in the Lord. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. You see, that strong God provides us strength in and through Jesus. Be strong in the Lord. You know, you take that out and what do you get? Finally, be strong. What kind of Christian message is that? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's not be strong in the strength of your might. Ephesians is all about union with Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We even sang the song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Be strong in the Lord. Paul wrote to the uh, Philippian church, I can do all things through my own ability. I can do all things through my own education. I can do all things through my own wisdom. I can do all things by myself. No. What does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There was an Anglican minister in the 1700s in England by the name of John Berridge. He wrote the hymn, Jesus Cast a Look on Me, that we've sung once or twice. He became a, a minister, a cleric at age 35, and he became a Christian at age 40, based on his own autobiography. And John Berridge wrote these words. Once I had gone to Jesus full of airs and graces. That's, a, I think, an old English way of saying full of myself. Once I had gone to Jesus full of airs and graces, I thought, if he is somebody, well, I am somebody too. If he is special, then so am I. If he has merit, then so do I. I used Jesus like a healthy man carries a walking cane and twirls it in the air. Today, he is my whole crutch. I can't stir a foot without him. He is my all as he ought to be if he is my Lord and Savior. My heart never has any rest until it rests on him wholly. I hope you pictured the image from those words of a man walking down the street twirling a cane versus a man on crutches, unable to walk without that kind of assistance. Did you hear him say he used Jesus? So we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus more like a cane which we twirl around, twirl around to display to a world our talent? Our, our, the fact that we even know Jesus? Or is Jesus a crutch? 
that weak and wounded, sick and sore people have to have in order to walk. Is Jesus your cane or is he your crutch? God provides strength and power. It's his resurrection power. If we were to do a word study in the strength of his might, it's the same word that he's used when he refers earlier in his letter to the resurrection power that was needed to bring Christ from death to life. Back to the command. The command is be strong in the Lord. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, it means this. You are weak and God is strong. It's as simple and hard as that. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? To know that you are weak and that he is strong. You see, my friends, whether we like it or not, whether we signed up for it or not, we're all in a fight. And it's a fight to the finish. And in this fight, remember this, humility comes before the fight. Humility comes before the resistance. You see, Ephesians 4 through 6, the duty part of the Christian life begins in humility and it ends in warfare. You see, in Ephesians 4 verse 2, we're we're called to be humble. And here at the end, we're called to be strong. And both James and Peter in their letters say that because of pride, we are to humble ourselves. And then, and only then, are we ready to resist the devil. You see, Satan loves proud Christians. He hates humble Christians. Are any of us really where we need to be when it comes to humility? Of course not. But where are you headed? To pride or to humility? You know, earlier, where we, when we began, there was this statement by the Prime Minister of Great Britain about peace for our time. Is there peace for our time? Is there peace for you and me right here, right now? Well, yes, because there is peace with God found through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we are justified by faith, Paul writes in Romans 5, we have peace with God. Amen. Hallelujah. But there's also no peace for our time. Because being at peace with God means that we are at war. We're in a fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, we are called to be strong in the Lord because we're called to wage the good fight of the faith. If you do have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, earlier I read verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. But I want us to notice what Paul wrote 
right above that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Did you hear that, friends? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. That's the good fight of the faith. Fighting the good fight of the faith is pursuing these while wearing the armor, the equipment that God provides. One day, those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation will be able to say, I have fought the good fight. Until that day, we're all right now fighting the good fight of the faith. Christian, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the fight, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Remember what we sang earlier. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing and he must win the battle my friends the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has won the battle for you when you realize the battle you face the weakness you possess and the strength that God provides. When your eyes are open to see reality like that. Then you run to the one who has won the battle. In your place and on your behalf. My friends. Let's help one another today. And always. Fight. The good fight of the faith, the faith that we've been given, the faith that's a gift, the faith that leads us home. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you sober us up to recognize that we are in a fight and it's a fight to the finish. But would you also, Father, sober us up to the reality that it's a not a fight of flesh. It's not a fight for worldly power or influence or prestige, worldly acclaim. It's not fighting to put others down. It's a fight where we battle our own sin. It's a fight where we reject the lies of Satan and trust your good promises. It's a, it's a lie. It, it, it's, a, it's a fight where we say no to the world and yes to you and your word. Oh, Father, be pleased to strengthen us in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Amen.